in the midst of a four-week series called God's Great Story. Colton started us off last week with the story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. My topic for today is the fall from Genesis 3. Next week will be the story of redemption, and then on Easter Sunday we'll be um, dealing with renewal. But our text for today is Genesis 3, and we will be all over the Bible, so um, be ready. But before we start, I must give you fair warning. This will not be a fun sermon today. And I say that because the fall of man is ugly, it is painful, it's gut-wrenching, it's humiliating, not just for Adam and Eve, but for you and me too. But unless we go there and stare into that mirror that tells us who we really are, we will never appreciate the magnitude of God's grace and we'll never be able to worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. Okay, we're in Genesis 3. If you'll open your Bibles, I'm going to read most of that chapter. It's a story that you all know very well, but we're going to read it anyway. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken, 
For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what we see in this story, a story which we all know very well, what we see in this story is that Satan had devised a scheme to destroy the shalom that God had brought into the garden. And he, cho- he did that by choosing to appeal to that lust for autonomy, for that self-determination that all of us as humans have. Did God actually say, you don't really want to be ruled by God, do you? Don't you want to make your own decisions? And we see that Adam and Eve, they made a decision. They made a decision to sin, to rebel against God. And this episode we call the fall. We call it the fall as if Adam and Eve were just kind of sauntering along, minding their own business, and just walked up to the edge of a pit and inadvertently, on accident, just kind of tripped and fell into that pit. That's not what happened. That's a euphemism when we call it the fall. This was no accident. They didn't trip and stumble into a trap that, they, that was unsuspecting. When Adam and Eve sinned, they knew exactly what they were doing. They jumped into that pit, eyes wide open. So what happened as a result of that bad decision? See, it's as if Adam and Eve walked into a courtroom. God is the judge. Adam and Eve are the accused. The evidence is a piece of fruit with two bites taken out of it. The verdict is guilty. And the sentence is what we just read in Genesis 3. They lost their intimate relationship with God. The woman would have pain and childbearing. They would have They would toil and sweat in bringing food from the earth because the ground itself would be cursed and they would be removed from the garden and they would be mortal. They would eventually die. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. But what might not be so clear in just a straightforward reading of Genesis chapter 3 is that this story in Genesis 3 is the pivot point for all of human history. The creation story is Genesis 1 and 2. We talked about that last week. And then we have the fall in Genesis 3. And then in Genesis 4, to the end of Revelation, is God's story of his redemption. So Colton gets to preach that next week. Genesis 4 to the end of Revelation. We're going to enjoy that. But, but Genesis 3 is the pivot point. It's where everything changed. But you would never know that just by reading that one chapter. You can read it over and over and never understand the significance of what happened in Genesis 3. But it's the pivot point of human history because it didn't have consequences just for Adam and Eve. It had devastating consequences for every human being that would ever live, including you and me. Many years ago, I remember a conversation that I had as a young college student. Many years ago. And a friend and I were just walking around in a park late at night. It was dark. 
and we were just hanging out, talking. He was a very thoughtful guy. And, and he just asked me, he said, he said, what do you think? Do you think people are basically good or are they basically evil? And I remember I, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know how to answer him. And the sad thing is I had been in church my entire life. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I was there for nearly 20 years, and I had never heard anyone actually address that question. So when he asked me, I didn't even know that I could appeal to Scripture to answer the question. So I just kind of said, well, you know, I kind of think that, that you know, everyone's basically good. That's the culturally acceptable answer. Seems logical to me. Everyone, yeah, we're, we're, people are good, but, you know, we all sin every now and then. That was, that was my answer never occurred to me that the Bible says something entirely different. Now, I want to clarify something as we're talking about what happened to our nature, to our human nature as a result of the fall. I want to clarify that what I'm talking about is not who we are as Christians after God has taken our hearts and regenerated us and made us alive again. I'm not talking about who we are as Christians. I'm talking about who we were how we came into this world, what our nature is. So let's not be confused by that. And what we read in the pages of our Bibles is that, in fact, we are basically evil by nature. That may surprise you. So how do we know that the consequences of the fall were that dire, were really that horrible? How do we know that? If it doesn't say that in Genesis 3... How do we know? Well, we know because we have the rest of the Bible, and particularly we have the writings of Paul, particularly in Romans, and especially in Romans chapter 5. So we're going to go there, Romans 5. Now, I don't have time to read all of Romans 5. If this is a topic that you find maybe confusing, or if you just don't maybe really understand what I'm saying today, or maybe you don't believe what I'm saying today, I want you to go back this week and spend time in Romans 5. Because Paul talks about it at length. And while you're there, not just Romans 5, go back to Romans 3. Because Romans 3 talks also about who we are as humans. And while you're there, maybe go back to Romans 1. Because Romans 1 talks about that too. And don't forget 8 and 9. So just spend time in Romans. Okay? So Romans 5, pick up in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's Adam's disobedience, the many, you and I, were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now we get that part about the many being made righteous because of Jesus, where we stumble and where we have trouble is over this idea of the many being made sinners. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians, by the way, 15 
Tristan was just there. For as by Adam, or, sorry, for as by a man came death, by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Adam and Eve's sin didn't just have consequences for themselves. It had consequences for all of creation from that time forward. The significance of the fall is impossible to overstate. And Paul, just so you know, Paul is saying much more than because of the fall, we all have a tendency to sin. He's saying we're sinners in our very core. That we're not basically good, we're basically evil. He's saying that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Think about that. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. Jesus said that we're all slaves to sin. It's like we're prisoners to our own sinfulness. But it's not as if we're chained in a dark cell longing to see the light. We love the darkness. We're not longing for the light. We're willing prisoners. The effects of the fall are absolutely devastating. They're pride-shattering. It defines who we are before God. And to be clear, it's not just a spiritual thing. It affected all of us. It affected our minds. Our minds are not as sharp as they would have been. And our bodies, we suffer the relentless effects of aging. Why do we have wrinkles and gray hair or no hair? Why do we have back problems? Why do you have toenails that hurt? Why do we have feet that we can't feel? Why do we have cancer, cataracts, diabetes? It's the fall. All of that is the result of the fall. And it's not just us. It affects all of creation. Paul said in Romans 8, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We just sang about that. So, time out. Some of you may be thinking that just none of this makes any sense. That this whole business of the fall just doesn't make sense at all. Why would one bad decision in the garden have such horrible consequences for every single one of us? It just isn't logical. And it just doesn't seem fair. Why should I be held accountable for someone else's sin? That just doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? So what we're going to do, we're going to pause the sermon for a minute, and we're just going to step into that question, and we're going to talk about it. Now, it's true that for many people who look at this and see that it just that it is illogical and it doesn't make sense, that they have a different explanation. Their, their, their take on the whole Genesis 3 thing is, well, you know, God put that story there 
so that we would understand how serious he is about sin. See what he did to Adam and Eve? It's there to tell us that God is really serious about sin, but it didn't really have any effect on all of us. We, when we're born, we have a clean slate just like they did. And we can all make choices. Eventually, yeah, we all fall into sin, but but we're not created that way. We're not evil by nature. That is an alternative view, which many people who call themselves Christians believe to be true. The problem with that view is that it just doesn't hold up to Scripture. That's not what our Bibles tell us. Paul just told us, we read in Romans and 1 Corinthians, that one sin led to the condemnation of all men. And Paul says again in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the year, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You and I, like the rest of mankind, are by nature children of wrath. We are corrupted in our nature. So maybe if we think about it, maybe there is an explanation that does make sense. Now, I also want to say that as we dive into this, when we talk about the explanation, this is not explicitly from Scripture. You don't hear that very often from this pulpit, praise God. But the point is that Scripture just doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us an explanation as to why God decided to hold us accountable for the sin of Adam and Eve. It just says that he did. It's a truth that we read over and over and over in Scripture, but why is it there? Why is, th- why is that truth? Why did God make that decision? This is an issue that theologians have wrestled with for a long time. So what I'm about to say is not explicitly from Scripture, but I think it makes sense. You can take it or leave it. And it has to do with the idea that Adam and Eve served as our representatives. You see, you and I... We live in a constitutional republic, and we know what it is and what it means to elect someone to represent us. We elect people to go to the state house or to go to Washington to represent our interests. That's what they do. Now, they oftentimes forget when they get there what they told us that they were going to do, and they forget who it is they're representing, but we at least understand the concept of a representative. And what happened in the garden, I think, is that God chose Adam and Eve to serve as our representatives, representatives of the human race. And he then gave them a test, a test in the form of a tree with forbidden fruit. And had they passed the test, you and I would have shared in their success. But when they failed the test, when they chose to sin, then we share in their condemnation because they served as our representatives. But but wait a minute. It's still not fair. That's still not fair. I didn't elect them. You didn't choose Adam and Eve, you might say. 
if, if I had been there, I think I would have enjoyed living in the garden. I think I could have resisted that Satan guy. Maybe I would have made a better choice. I could have chose someone else to represent me. But see, this is where we have to understand that God understood that this was a big deal. This is life or death. This is not a place where we can make mistakes. And we are fallible human beings. And had we picked our own representative, it's possible, likely, actually, that we would have chosen poorly. We make mistakes. So God chose for us. God doesn't make mistakes. And God chose someone he knew would perfectly represent you and me in the garden. And so when Adam and Eve chose to sin, you can be absolutely 100% certain that you and I would have made the same decision. <laughs> but you might say, you know what? I just don't even like the idea of a representative. I mean, it still just doesn't make sense. It's still not fair. Why should one person suffer for the sins of another? I don't like it. Really? Really? Is that what's in your heart? Because that's what Jesus Christ did for you and me. As Paul said in Romans 5, it was exactly his point. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, or the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin is my sin. So back to the sermon. I think the question then that we have to ask, it's obvious that this thing happened that we call the fall and that our nature's changed, but the question that we have to ask is how far did we fall? What does that really mean? And let me tell you, I hesitate to even start this discussion because I don't want to give it less attention than it deserves. And unfortunately, I think most believers have never actually stopped to consider what the Bible has to say about this topic. And it's likely, I'm afraid, that some of you will be stunned by what I'm about to say. What does it mean to be fallen? The Bible says we have a sin nature, but what does that mean? Well, let's look to Jesus. What did Jesus tell us about this? Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Now, the good news is here that as soon as we finish this series in a couple of weeks, we're going to be back in the gospel of Mark, and a couple of weeks later, we will be in this chapter, in Mark chapter 10. This is a phenomenal story. I can't wait to get there. There's so much richness in this story. It's the story of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10. So I'm just going to just dip into that story for just a moment because it addresses this question. The question, how far did we fall? Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
What did he mean by that? No one is good. I think we would have been okay if he had said, if he had said no one is perfect. We'd say, oh, yeah, okay, I got that. No one's perfect. But that's not what he said. He said no one is good. What did he mean? Well, if we go to Romans 3, Paul talked about it, talked about it at length, what it's like to be a fallen human. And in Romans 3, Paul quotes David in, from Psalm 14. So let's go there, Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So that's what Jesus said, that there's no one good. David said that in the Psalms. But again, what does he really mean? Does he mean no one is good all the time? Or does he mean no one is ever good or ever does anything good? Well, let's see what God said about the nature of man. And we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. And this is what God said. He was about to destroy the world with the flood. Okay, this is the Noah story. And here is what God said. This is his assessment of the nature of man. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear that? This is God's assessment. That every intention of the thoughts of our heart is only evil all the time. And don't think for one moment that mankind is any less wicked today than it was then. Human nature has not changed. Just watch the news any night of the week. Back to Romans. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry carry it out. And note that he didn't say, when I look into my heart, there's a little bit of sin that taints my otherwise wonderful character. It's not what he said. He said, when I look in my heart, there's nothing good that dwells in me, in my flesh. In Romans 8, Verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And notice, again, that he's not saying that we have difficulty submitting to God, or that we usually don't submit to God, or that our occasional sin sometimes displeases not what he said. What he said is we cannot submit. We cannot please God. And that, friends, is a hard truth. That's the consequence of our fallen nature. So imagine that you walk into a classroom. You walk into a classroom, sit down with all the other students, and the teacher walks in and passes out a test. And the teacher says, Just so you know, this test has 100 questions, and you have to get them all right if you're going to pass this test. 100-question test, 
passing grade is 100. And also, just so you know, I've been given this test for 10,000 years, and no one has ever passed. So you start taking the test, and you're working along, and you think, you know, I thought this was going to be pretty hard, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting this. You know, you're... You're, you're kind of working through, and, and you think, yeah, okay, I got that one, I got that one. Uh, this one's a little hard, but I got this one, I got this one. And, and you work your way through the test, you hand it in at the end, and you get your grade back. 87. Say, well, that's not bad. I made a good solid B. I know it didn't pass. Passing is 100. But, you know, I made an 87. That's, that's pretty good. Tristan made a 92. Some of you, not so much. But, you know, that's, that's kind of how we all think about our lives. But what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying when he says that no one is good, is that not one of us ever get one question right. It's not that we just miss a few here and there. That on our own, in our flesh, we'll never get any question right. And this is a doctrine. And by the way, doctrine is not a dirty word. It's not a four-letter word. Doctrine is a statement of truth, biblical truth. And this is a doctrine that we have called total depravity. Rich talked about it a few weeks ago in his sermon. And it's a doctrine that goes by many different names. The idea, um, we call it radical depravity, sometimes total inability or radical corruption, pervasive evil. This is my favorite. Comprehensive iniquity. I think that would be an awesome movie title. Comprehensive iniquity. Starring Liam Neeson. Be awesome. I'd go see that movie. But what does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that we are as sinful as we could possibly be. It doesn't mean that we have no virtue whatsoever. It doesn't mean that we are stained because we sin occasionally. What it does mean is that we can never do anything on our own to please or glorify God. And that's why everything we do in our flesh is sin. We can never do anything on our own to please or glorify God. That's why Jesus said, no one is good. And that's why he said in John chapter 6, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now again, you say, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can you say? How can you say that no one is good? I watch people all the time, even non-believers. Even non-believers do good things. Even non-believers take care of their children. Even non-believers are compassionate towards sick people or poor people. Even non-believers will give their money away to worthy causes. They can be industrious. There are a lot of wonderful, good things that people do. So how can you say that no one is good? And this is where definitions matter. Definitions always matter. But here's where it really matters, because... When Jesus said no one is good, he's not using the world's standards. He's using God's standards for goodness. It's God's standards. And the key point here is motivation. Why 
do we do what we do? And the fact is that our actions are only good in God's eyes if our actions are motivated by a pure desire to honor and glorify God. And we just can't do that in our flesh. I remember a number of years ago, I went to Lowe's. I was in the midst of a building project. And I bought a bunch of lumber. And I bought that lumber, I got out to my truck, and I'm in a hurry, as always, and I, and I throw all the lumber in the back of my truck, and I just, this is kind of embarrassing, um, but it's a true story, so I'm going to tell it anyway. I didn't tie all that lumber down in the back of my truck like I should. Sorry, John Francis. So I jump in the truck, and I head off, and I, I exit the parking lot, and I turn right onto that access road right there on the loop, and I hear this noise. And I look in my rearview mirror, and there is all my lumber spilling out the back of my truck onto the access road. And, you know, cars whizzing by and honking their horns. And so I, I stopped the truck. And by the time I've backed up, back to where I can reload all of my lumber, two men had stopped their truck and had gotten out. And at the risk of their own lives, they had gotten out and gathered up that lumber and pulled it out of the way. And then they helped me load all of that lumber back into the back of my truck. And when they were all done, I tried to thank them, and that's when I realized they didn't even speak a word of English. They just waved at me and smiled, got in their truck, and drove off, and I never saw them again. Now, in my mind, that was good. That was better than good. What those men did for me was awesome. I loved their kindness They went out of their way, risked their own lives, inconvenienced themselves for a stupid guy who did something really foolish. But I don't know why they did what they did. For me, it was great. But in God's eyes, in God's eyes, if what they did was not motivated by a desire to honor or serve him, then what they did was not good but sinful. Isaiah said it like this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Notice what he says. He says, he doesn't say all of our deeds are a polluted garment. He says all our righteous deeds. What he's saying is that even those things that we consider righteous, when we consider them good, in God's eyes, if they're not done for the right reason, they're filthy rags. There's a danger here. And the danger is this. Some would argue that this idea, this doctrine that we call total depravity, it means that we always sin because we have to because it's our nature. And if we have no choice, how can God hold us responsible for that? In other words, this doctrine could become like an excuse. I can't help it. But make no mistake, when we sin, it's because we want to. It's not that we have no ability to make choices, it's that we have no ability to make holy choices. We all have wills, and we can make choices all the time. We do. 
but we can only choose that which we desire the most. And when anyone sins, it's because at that moment, they want to sin more than they want to not sin. That's true for believers as well as non-believers. But for unbelievers who never have a desire to honor God or to keep his law in any way, that's why all of their choices are sinful choices. So how far have we fallen? I have painted a dismal picture, I'm afraid. In our flesh, we can do nothing good, and everything we do is sin because that's what we desire. But until now, I've been sugarcoating this a bit. It's actually a lot worse. Paul describes our fallen condition as spiritual death. In Ephesians 2, back to Ephesians 2. And he said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you were dead. He doesn't say, and you were really, really sick. Or you were just mortally wounded. That is not what he said. He said, you are dead. Some people see our human condition as like a drowning man. Maybe you've heard this. A man sailing across the Pacific Ocean on a ship, and he falls off the ship in the middle of the night. The ship sails on, and there he is, floundering in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no life jacket, no life raft. Nobody even knows he's there. He has no hope whatsoever. He's thousands of miles away from any land. And there he is. He's drowning. He goes under for the third time. He's almost gone. His strength is completely wasted. And God throws him a rope. And all he has to do is reach out and grab that rope. That's not what Paul described. In Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul says is, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved. What Paul says is that God didn't throw us a rope. He reached down to the bottom of the ocean where we were our lifeless body with no air in our lungs. He pulls us off the bottom of the ocean and he breathes life back into us. That's what Paul describes is our human condition. It's much more like Lazarus. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, Lazarus was a stinking, rotting corpse until Jesus said, Lazarus, come out! And that's exactly what Jesus has done for you and me. He didn't just throw us a rope. He resurrected us from the dead. This morning, I've attempted to shed light on what Scripture says about the human condition. It is bleak. It is dreadful. It's humiliating. Why do we need to know that? Is this just painful but otherwise useless Theology? I said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. Unless we stare into that mirror that tells us who we really are, we'll never appreciate the magnitude of God's grace 
and we'll never be able to worship our Lord as he deserves to be worshiped. Brothers and sisters, it, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. But God, being rich in mercy, that's the redemption story. And that's where Colton is going to pick up next week, and I hope you'll be here.